um, I do want to encourage you guys to really like follow up on that, you know, and, and do the hard work of really continuing to cultivate that in your life. Um, because one of the, remember, one of the things that we said at the very beginning, the very first message was that fruit grow over time, right? That's one of the, the characteristics of fruit of the spirit. And so like, obviously you're not going to totally mature in goodness, for example, you know, before we get to faithfulness next week. Okay. So, um, yeah, keep revisiting these truths. Keep taking inventory of your life. Um, keep allowing the Holy Spirit to work in you. And over time, we trust. You know, we trust that he's going to cultivate these qualities in your life. But that being said, uh, next up for tonight is the fruit of goodness. And I think if you were to look at, you know, all of these qualities or all of these fruits of the Spirit, um, I think goodness maybe seems like the most abstract one on the list. Um, I, wanna, I want you to start by just having you think about all of the different ways that we use the word good, right? For example, we use good to talk about competence. You know, when we say that this person is a good teacher or a good cook um, or a good employee, what we mean by that is that they are good at what they do, right? That's how, that's one way that we use the word good. Um, Or we can also use the word good as in good, but not great. You know, like, it's just okay. Um, for some reason, like, all of us, we love to use, or I would say overuse, words like amazing or awesome. You know, we're like, oh, you know, I, what did you do today? Oh, nothing. Oh, that's awesome, right? That's amazing. And so uh, we like to use those words. And so the word good is just, you know, it's, it's all right. You, know, you don't want to say well, that message, that person's sermon is just good. Um, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, Here's another way that we use the word good. This is something that uh, uh, one commentator said. He said, goodness is a word which we have relegated to the nursery. We tell children to be good, right? I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, A parent telling their kids, hey, be good, behave, right? Uh, There was a uh, kind of this controversy with um, this like Christian college. And uh, recently, actually, the president of the college like got in trouble by posting some provocative photo. Um, he had, and he has like some history of, of doing that kind of stuff. And he, he gave this like really like kind of lame apology, but he said, I'm going to try to be a good boy, you know, like, and, and what he means by that is, oh, I won't do anything wrong, right? I'll try to behave. Um, that's another way that we use the word good. Well, think about all of those ways that we use the word good in our kind of common language. And I want you to think about that uh, kind of in contrast to Mark chapter 10. If you guys think Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 22, there is a story, there's an account of a rich young man who goes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus this question uh, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you guys are familiar with that story. Remember what Jesus says next? He says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so I think like reading a statement like that shows us that goodness, according to the Bible, is no small thing. You know, it's no trivial thing. There is weight to what goodness means. It's not just a word to be tossed around. Uh, Jesus says, Mark 10, only God is good. right, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And I think for those of us um, who have been Christians for a while, like, I I think we kind of know this already. Um, Maybe you're familiar with Romans 3, verses 11 and 12. It talks about how uh, 
we, apart from Christ, we are totally depraved, right? It says none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. It says no one does good, not even one. I think we're kind of familiar with that, right? We're not good before God. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says we are not saved as a result of our works, but only by grace through faith. Uh, We are not inherently good people. We're not saved because we did enough good things. I think if you're a Christian for any number of time, uh, we know that because that is a fundamental part of the gospel message. And yet, if you actually, if you keep reading in Ephesians 2, that very same passage, it says that we are God's workmanship. And Paul says we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, uh, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so I think that part is important. Paul says we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And so even as we start, I, I think we need to just pause and we should be amazed that the Holy Spirit can produce this genuine fruit of goodness in people like us. Right? If like Romans 3 says, there's none who's good, no, not one. Uh, Ephesians 2, we, we're not saved by our goodness. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet the fruit of this, or Galatians 5, our passage we've been looking at these past few weeks, it says that one of these genuine fruit that the Spirit can produce in our lives is the fruit of goodness. And I think we should be amazed at that. Right? I think we should uh, be in awe of that, awe of that. And so let's define what we mean by goodness, okay? Um, <clears throat> I think like kindness, goodness encompasses more than just the things that we do. Okay, it talks about the kind of people that we are. Um, Goodness describes this inner disposition that causes an outward action. Okay, it doesn't just describe your conduct, but also your character. It's both of those things. Also, like kindness, goodness is marked by generosity. Okay, by generosity. J.I. Packer, he describes it like this. He says, goodness is a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive, and is not limited by what the recipients deserve, but consistently goes beyond it. Get to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive and is not limited by what the recipients deserve, but consistently goes beyond it. Um, I think we see this idea in 1 Timothy 6, 18. Paul exhorts those who are rich, and he says, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Right? You see goodness and generosity together in that verse. Um, the parable of the vineyard in Matthew 20, 15. I think it's a good example of this. Uh, if you guys are familiar with that parable, uh, at the beginning of the day, there's a, a master of the house and he agrees to pay some workers. Uh, they agree on a, one denarius, right? And, and he says, hey, work my vineyard. Um, but if you guys are familiar with the story, throughout the day, this master goes, he hires some more workers it says some at the third hour, some at the sixth hour, some at the ninth hour, and then some at the 11th hour, which is like the very last hour of the day. <clears throat> and then at the end of the day, the master ends up paying everyone that same amount, right? He pays everyone uh, one denarius. And understandably, those who were hired at the beginning of the day, they get upset. And, and they say, like, how do those guys who were hired at, you know, the ninth hour, the 11th hour, how do they get the same as us who have been working all day? And you remember what the master says? He says, didn't we agree on your payment at the beginning of the day? You you agreed to work for me for one denarius. 
me. And the master says, don't I have the freedom to choose what to do with my, with the money that belongs to me. And then he says, do you begrudge my generosity? And that word for generosity is goodness. Do you begrudge my goodness? Right, that parable is about um, our sinful entitlement. It's about God's free and generous grace. But that is the fruit of goodness. Right? It's not just stuck on what's fair, but it errs on the side of generosity and kindness. Right? Goodness is generous. <clears throat> Another part of goodness is integrity. Um, Tim Keller defines goodness in this way. He says that it is being the same person in every situation rather than a phony or a hypocrite. It being the same person in every situation rather than a phony or a hypocrite. <clears throat> so what you see is what you get, right? There is no deceit. There's no sham. There's no pretense. Uh, good people do what they do simply because it's the right thing to do. They don't do it with ulterior motives. They don't do it to, to get a good name. Um, goodness and integrity, they go beyond just your reputation. Right, think about it. You can have a good reputation in the eyes of other people, and you can still be lacking in the fruit of goodness, right? Because there's like some sort of inconsistency in your life. Or on the flip side, people can slander you. They can falsely accuse you. And yet your life can be characterized by goodness, right? <clears throat> uh, we'll talk more about this in a bit. Okay, so... Uh, that's kind of our, well, our definition of goodness. Let's look at the goodness of God. Uh, because, of course, like many of the other qualities, I think, of the fruit of the Spirit, we learn most about them in the person of God. And so what does the Bible teach us about God's goodness? Well, I, I, uh, I think it's helpful to think about it maybe in, in three categories. I got this from uh, Pastor Andrew Wilson, um, but he thinks about, God's goodness in scripture as revealed in these three categories. He says God's goodness as definition, as property, and as experience. Okay, definition, property, and experience. And we'll go through that in that order. So let's start with definition. Okay, so I think one way that the Bible describes God's goodness is that goodness really describes the very definition of who God is. Okay, um, J.A. Packer again, he says that God's goodness is the sum total of all his revealed excellences. The sum total of all his revealed excellences. Um, John Frame, he's a theologian. He, he has this quote, and this is on your notes. He says, to praise God's goodness is not to praise something other than God himself. It is not to praise something less than him or part of him, so to speak. It is to praise him. God's goodness is not something that is intelligible in itself apart from everything else God is. Uh, one of the passages that we have turned to multiple times during this series is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Right? If you guys remember that passage, it is when Yahweh reveals himself to Abraham as he passes by Abraham. Right? And it had, it's, it's that famous uh, proclamation that Yahweh makes. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, right? That's patience, like we, that state she preached on. <clears throat> it says abounding in steadfast love. That's the word has said, um, or the idea of kindness that we talked about last week. Um, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, right? So this is like Yahweh's grand proclamation of who he is to Moses, well, if you back up to chapter 33, 
This is when Moses first asked God to do this whole thing. Um, Moses says this to God. He says, uh, please show me your glory. Okay, this is in Exodus 33. And what does God say to that request? Uh, Exodus 33, 19, he says, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. And Moses says, please show me your glory. And God says, okay, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And so all of those perfections that we talked about in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, all of those together, they are God's expression of his goodness, right? Together, they make up God's goodness. And so I think one thing this means is that God himself is the ultimate standard. He defines what good is. Okay, the passage I mentioned at the beginning, Mark chapter 10, um, 17 to 22, it says that only God is good. Um, or you think of the very first time that the word good shows up in the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. Right? God does his work of creation, and at the end of each day, he deems it as good. Right? God makes that determination, says this is good. And I think this is so important, especially in our day, because what is truly good is being questioned and it's being attacked. And really, I think this shouldn't surprise us because the Bible warns about this. Um, even back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 520, uh, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and, go, and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Um, similar idea in 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. <clears throat> Paul is describing what people will be like in the last days. And we're in, living in the last days right now. Um, and he says that one of the qualities in this like long list of vices is that people will not love good. Okay, and so I think knowing that, uh, just like one quick application is to ask yourself, are you turning to God's word to teach you what is good? And are you turning to God's word to teach you what is good? And I think that that's true with everything from like the smaller things that require discernment you know, like, oh, should I indulge in this form of entertainment? What shows should I watch? What music should I listen to? What activities should I partake in? That's everything from those smaller things, maybe gray area uh, things, to someone like the more significant cultural issues and the position that you, you take on certain things. You have to ask yourself, is that decision governed by what God has deemed as good? Right? Is that decision governed by that first and foremost, because God has said that that is good. You know what? The reality is, is that to hold on to what God says is truly good in our day, in our culture, that's going to be really unpopular. But I think one thing that we need to understand is that sin, right? That which is not good, sin isn't just morally wrong. Okay. It's not just breaking the rules, but it's actually destructive. Right? It actually leads to death. It's actually not good for us. All right, so that is definition. Okay, um, next is property. You can say that, that goodness, it really summarizes the totality of who God is and everything that he does. Um, but I think scripture also does speak of God's goodness in a more narrow sense. It, I think it does speak of his goodness in uh, as one of his attributes among others. Okay, for example, 
God's goodness speaks of his moral uprightness. It speaks of his righteousness. Um, it is because of God's goodness that James 1, 13 and 14, it says that when you're tempted, that you can't blame God for that because, because God can't be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. That's God's goodness, right? He is pure and blameless. He doesn't change. Uh, James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. That is, uh, it's God's goodness. And then also, like we said earlier, uh, God demonstrates his goodness, not just through moral uprightness and blamelessness and righteousness, but also through his generosity towards us. Okay. In fact, we know that God is good and he's generous, not just to us as believers, but even to unbelievers. And that's called uh, the doctrine of common grace. Right? Acts 14, 16 and 17. It says that God did good. How? By providing rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, even to those who were walking in their own ways. That is a demonstration of God's goodness. Uh, it's also God's goodness. First uh, Timothy six seventeen says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We can enjoy the good things in this life, um, and that's an expression of God's goodness to us. And yet, all of the goodness that we experience in this life is just a shadow of God's goodness. Uh, Matthew seven eleven it says that if you who are evil know how to good know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Right? If even us human beings who are flawed, even if we have like this uh, semblance of good, then how much more good is God to us? Right? When we pray to Him, then we should ask if we know that is how good He is. So God's goodness in scripture, it is something that, that really summarizes who he is as God. Um, but it also describes something that he does. Okay. And the third category is it's something that we affirm by experience. Um, Psalm 34, eight. Uh, I think this, that verse shows us this. It says, the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, for us, I think we can probably think of instances in our lives where we, we can say that for ourselves, right? Where we, we've experienced that, where we have tasted and where we have seen that the Lord is indeed good. Uh, maybe God provided you with an opportunity that you were hoping for. Maybe he answered a prayer that you had been asking for a long time. Maybe he just allowed you to enjoy something really nice, you know, whether that's a delicious meal, uh, a nice day with loved ones, being with a church family, whatever it might be. We've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good through his good provision in our life. Well, it's one thing, I think, to affirm God's goodness when things are going well, but it's a lot more difficult to say the same thing when life is hard. And yet, when we, when we look throughout the Bible over and over again throughout Scripture, you see people affirming the goodness of God, even from a place of suffering, right? We see people talking about how good God is, even when things aren't going well. Um, <clears throat> psalm twenty-seven, thirteen. read through that psalm. The, the psalmist is suffering. He's, he's in fear of his enemies. And he says this in verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Right? I believe that God is good. I'm going to look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Hebrews 12.10. Um, this person is 
he's talking about the discipline of the Lord. He says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Right? The rest of that passage is going to say, discipline is painful. Right? Discipline is not fun. And yet, we understand that it's good for us because God is a father to us. He's, he's doing it in love towards us. Or Romans 8.28, you know, you guys all know this verse, right? We, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, including the hard parts of our lives. And so maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking, like, what if I don't feel like God is good? And I think, uh, I think Ray touched on this during the Q&A last week when he was talking about suffering, the problem of evil. Um, he said, can we trust that what God understands is good? Can we trust that that is different than, and can we trust that is better than what we understand to be good? Right? Is that so hard to believe? I know in an experience of suffering, yeah, it's hard to believe that, but like God is so far beyond us, right? Can we trust that his understanding of good is different than and better than our understanding of good? Right? Good is the very definition of God. Good is what God is and does. He cannot do otherwise. And so as, as we've said often at Lighthouse, we, uh, we need to read our circumstances through the filter of God's goodness, through who he is, his very definition, right? rather than let our circumstances dictate whether God is good or not. Um, Jesus says so himself, John 10, 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. And he has demonstrated that goodness to us. He's demonstrated that he is indeed a good shepherd uh, by, by going to the cross. And we know that for those of us who are led by Jesus, the good shepherd, we can say, like Psalm 23 says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Right? So God is good. And our experience, the experience of the psalmist, of the biblical authors, that affirms God's goodness, even from a place of suffering. All right, this message is about the spiritual fruit of goodness in our lives. And I know that we've been talking mostly about God's goodness so far. Um, but I think that that really is important for framing our understanding. Okay, as we think about how do we cultivate goodness in our lives, we really have to understand the goodness of God. And so let's ask the question, okay, what does the fruit of goodness look like for us? How do we grow in this? Um, I'm sure that there's more than this, uh, but I want to focus on two ideas. And I, I hope that as we go through this, that you do see how this is connected to God's goodness. Okay, this is a reflection of his goodness. And I think in many ways, um, consequently, it's different than the world's idea of goodness. Okay, it's, it's different from this popular conception of, of goodness. Okay, so the first idea is, is this, the first way that we grow in goodness. Uh, it's cultivate goodness in your heart by remembering that we have an audience of one. Cultivate goodness in your heart by remembering that we have an audience of one. Uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6 in your Bibles. Matthew 6. <laughs> All right, so in Matthew chapter 6, um, verse 1, Jesus says this. He says, Beware 
of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Right. So I think that is a pretty good kind of like summary, thematic verse for this section. And then after verse one, Jesus is going to go on and he's going to give a few different examples of what this looks like. Okay. Not practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen, but, but really uh, being righteous, practicing righteousness uh, for the sake of the father, right. To please our father who is in heaven. Okay. So he gives three examples. One, he says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He says, let your giving be done in secret. Second, he says, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door. Uh, Don't pray out on the street corner, right? Pray in the privacy of your own room. Pray to your father who is in secret. And then third, he says, when you fast, he says, put on your Sunday best, right? Anoint your head, wash your face. Um, Look like you had just the most amazing meal so that your fasting may not be seen by others. Okay, so those are the three examples. And then throughout this passage, you see some of the same things come up over and over again, right? Jesus says, uh, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. And that word hypocrite, uh, it describes an actor, okay? Like a person in a play. And the idea is that the person, a hypocrite on stage is a totally different person off stage. This whole thing is just a performance. There is no consistency between their appearance and the actual pattern of their lives. Um, and, and this is so contrary to goodness. Remember how we defined goodness earlier? It's being the same person in every situation. Well, what does he say about these hypocrites? Uh, it's actually kind of an interesting statement. He says in verse 2, verse 5, and verse 16, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What is he saying there? Well, he's saying that you might actually get away with it. You know, people might actually buy uh, your act, right? If all that you're after is the applause of others, then people might actually believe you. They might actually believe that's who you are, but that's it, right? That's all that you get. That's all you receive. And you miss out on so much. You've received your reward already. I think about what you miss out on, okay? When it comes to prayer, if you are just concerned about being seen by others, then you actually miss out on communing with God, your heavenly father. Or you, you miss out on being in a relationship with your maker. Or when it comes to fasting, right? If all you want to do is appear super holy, super pious, then you've missed the whole point, right? You, you've, you've missed the whole point of fasting. You have dulled your appetite for God, which is, the point of fasting, right, to grow our appetite for God, you've doled your appetite for God, maybe not with food or whatever you're refraining from, but you have, uh, you have fed yourself with the approval of others. You have filled yourself up with junk food and you've spoiled the real meal, right? Knowing God. Um, or what about when it comes to helping those in need? If you're just concerned about how, like, this act of charity reflects on you, then what are you missing out on? You're missing out on this opportunity to grow in selfless love. You're missing an opportunity to actually be free from the idol of other people's approval. And so that's what Jesus is saying here, right? For those who are just putting on this show, you've received your reward, but you miss out on so much. 
And so I think one just like helpful, practical thing you guys can do this week is to sit down and just think through the specific areas or the specific situations of your lives where this is a temptation. Okay, where you're tempted to please others rather than uh, to serve God, our audience of one. And then ask yourself, when I, when, I am tempted to do, when I am tempted to do that, when I seek to please men rather than God, when I pursue this kind of counterfeit goodness, what am I missing out on? Right? Make a list, write that down, and be specific. Jesus says there is great value in practicing righteousness and in doing goodness and doing all of that in secret. Okay, doing that and, and letting that remain unseen. And that doesn't mean that you have to avoid people. That doesn't mean you go off the grid. Um, you can still Instagram that big picture of your Bible and your latte if you want, uh, whenever we can sit in a coffee shop again. But I think what Jesus is getting at is that what you do, who you are, when no one is looking, that really reveals the motives of our hearts. And so I think just one diagnostic question to ask is, uh, how do I respond when others don't thank me? Right? How do I respond when others don't give me the credit that I feel like I deserve and they don't acknowledge me? Uh, I think Seichi maybe might touch on this more next week when we get to faithfulness. But one thing that Jesus says here is he says, your father sees, right? Whatever you do in secret, your father sees and he will reward you. Okay, so cultivate goodness in your heart by remembering who is our audience, right? Who are we doing this for? Why are we doing this? And then second, cultivate goodness in your relationships by entering into sin and suffering. Cultivate goodness in your relationships by entering into sin and suffering. And I think this second idea is a necessary complement to the previous idea because uh, if this like worldly counterfeit kind of goodness is more concerned about self, if it's just more concerned about like, how is this going to look on me rather than actually being, uh, being concerned about others, then it's going to want to avoid that which isn't good, right? It's going to want to bail when things get hard or when things get messy. But listen, the fruit of goodness isn't just moralism. Okay. It's not just being a goody two shoe, right? As people like to call it. God's example shows us that biblical goodness is willing to enter into and to restore brokenness and sin and suffering. Now you think of what the Bible is about, right? The entire Bible is a story of how God was not content to just leave his originally good creation under the curse of sin. Right? He wanted to do something about it. Um, in the Gospels, we see Jesus as an expression of his goodness uh, he gets angry at sin and injustice, right? That righteous kind of anger when things aren't the way that they should be. Um, one example of this is John chapter 11. When Lazarus dies, uh, Jesus weeps, right? The shortest, uh, maybe most famous verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And why did he weep? Yeah, because Lazarus was a close friend, but I think more significantly, he wept because he understands like, death is not the way it should be. Right? Things are wrong here. That's not the way that God intended things to be. Uh, the author N.D. Wilson, um, he wrote a book called Death by Living. Um, he gives a very vivid and a very helpful picture of this. Okay, so he brings us back to the Garden of Eden. And imagine you're there, you're with Adam and Eve, and Eve has just eaten of the fruit, and she has just sinned. And Wilson asked this question, 
and he says, what should Adam have done? What should Adam have done in that moment? Um, Let me read from what he writes. He says, careless self-absorption. Well, Adam says, see you, babe. I guess this is goodbye. I hope God makes me another one. Obviously, he's a pretty funny, creative writer. Um, Continues, or maybe he should get a wee bit self-righteous. Eve, I can't believe that you could be so thoughtless. Don't you understand what kind of position this puts me in? Of course not. You're just thinking of yourself. What should Adam have done? Wilson says, Adam would not have been a 14-year-old teenager being offered pot for the first time. He wouldn't have been the well-behaved Mormon teenager abstaining from the fruit. Adam would have looked at Eve, seen her curse, seen her enemy. And Adam would have gone after that serpent with the pure and righteous wrath of God himself. The God that he himself was made in the image of. Then Adam would have turned to God and he would have said something quite simple. Something that would have been said by another thousands of years later. He would have said, take me instead. Take me instead. Adam would have, should have stepped in front of his wife and he should have said, take me instead. Right? I will bear the punishment that she deserves. And Adam could have been a conqueror rather than the conquered. That's what the fruit of goodness does. And obviously, I mean, that's, that's Wilson's like sanctified imagination. But I think if we can continue this illustration, that's what Jesus Christ, the second Adam would do. And Jesus entered into the brokenness of our sin and into our suffering. And he laid down his life and he did that in order to make things right, right? In order to fix what was broken. And still now, even as we live the Christian life, God continues that work of redemption. He condescends into our sin and into our suffering. And we know that he's, he does that and he's producing something that is good. Um, Romans 8, 28 and 29, right? He works all things for good. What's the purpose? Our Christ-likeness to conform us into the image of his son. And not only that, but 2 Corinthians 5, it says that God, he has entrusted to us, us believers, the same message of reconciliation. That passage says we are his ambassadors, that God actually makes his appeal through us, right? We are the, he, he sends his message through us, this message of reconciliation to the world. And in the same way that God uses doctors you know, to care for our physical health, uh, we learn from scripture that God uses the church. He uses other believers to care for our spiritual health. God intends for us to be, if I can steal the title of um, Paul Tripp's book, He intends for us to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And so I want to look at Galatians 6 real quick. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Galatians 6, verses 1 to 10. Because I think this gives us a few practical ways that we can do this. Galatians 6, 1 to 10. As you're turning there, a couple things I want you to notice about this passage. Okay, first, I want you to realize that this this is right after our passage of the fruit of the Spirit. Right, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Um, and I, I think the point of this coming after like all of these qualities is that community and relationships, they are meant to be the context 
in which we cultivate and in which we practice these qualities. Um, I think uh, Tim did a good job of this in our Beacon video. That's what he shared. You know, like the fruit of the spirit is not this individualistic thing. It's actually things that we practice in community and relationships with one another. Okay. And then second, I want you to notice that goodness in particular is an emphasis in this section. Okay. Uh, especially in verses nine and 10. And so I think knowing that like these other verses, everything else that comes before verses nine and 10, all of these other verses help fill out what doing good to one another looks like. And I think we can summarize that by, uh, with this statement, entering into sin and suffering. Okay, entering into sin and suffering. So, so what does doing good look like, according to Paul? Well, two specific ways that we enter into sin and suffering. He says, restoring brothers and sisters and bearing burdens. Okay, restoring brothers and sisters and bearing burdens. So let's we'll start with restoring brothers and sisters. Okay, verse one, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, in verse one, he's talking about the hard work of helping another brother or sister who is caught in sin. And I think that word caught is a good word because I, I think it describes um, our experience, right? It's something that can happen to any one of us throughout the Christian life. It catches us off guard sometimes. That's why Paul says in verse one, also he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, right? And then if you jump down to verse three, he says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself, right? So this could be any of us. And I think that, that reality should make us humble. You know, don't think of yourself better than you actually are. Right? Keep watch on yourself. There's gonna be moments where brother or sister, even you yourself will be caught in sin. Well, for the rest of us, this passage says that we have a responsibility to help that brother or sister out, right? We have that responsibility. And specifically with what goal in mind? What does he say? He doesn't say not just to diagnose or to rebuke, but to restore. And that word restore um, in Matthew 4.21, it describes like mending torn fishing nets. Um, or it's also this idea of resetting a broken bone in, in the body. Right? Resetting a broken bone back into place. That's our goal to restore when someone is caught in sin. Whose job is it? He says, you who are spiritual. And I, I know uh, some of you read that and you're like, oh, not me, right? But that word spiritual isn't talking about those who are like extra godly or those who are formally trained, pastors, church leaders, um, people like that. All he's talking about there is those who have the Holy Spirit. And that's us if you're a believer. Right? It's the same idea we've been talking about with the fruit of the spirit. These qualities are not just for those with, you know, like the natural disposition for this or that. No, these are things that the Holy Spirit supernaturally, miraculously produces in you. Okay, so this, this responsibility of restoring one another, this is a work that the Holy Spirit qualifies you for. And it's a work that he does through you. How do we do this? Well, Paul says, in a spirit of gentleness in a spirit of gentleness. And I think part of that is uh, skill, right? That's why Lighthouse has things like the counselor training classes each year. Um, there's lots of really good resources or books to grow in this skill. But also I think he's talking about just the amount of humility and the amount of just tender care that's involved. Um, for myself, I've actually never broken a bone before, uh, but I imagine that resetting it to its proper place, even though it is, you know, like inevitably going to be painful, 
but it still requires a lot of tenderness. It still requires a lot of care. And I think it's the same way when it comes to restoring a brother or sister who's caught in sin. Now, there's not enough time to talk about how we do this practically. This is, that's what they do in the counselor training classes. But I hope that you see that this is a responsibility that we share to one another as fellow believers. Right? That I need you guys, Beacon, and you need me, and we need one another. Right? When we're caught in sin, we have this responsibility to help each other out. And so let me ask you, are you willing to have those hard conversations? Are you willing to enter into another brother or sister's sin struggle? I mean, in your mind, do you have a category for being able to gently but honestly confront sin in another person's life without thinking highly of yourself, but as a fellow sinner, right? Someone who can relate, someone who can genuinely seek this other person's good and restoration. Like we said, this is so different from the world's notion of goodness, okay? I think the world's notion of goodness, it it separates those who are moral or good from those who are not. But that's not biblical goodness, right? Biblical goodness doesn't pat yourself on the back because you're not like that person. Jesus told a parable about that. Rather, we understand that we're no better. We understand we have this responsibility to restore what is broken, to enter into the sin and the suffering of another. Okay, so that's the first way, restoring brothers and sisters. And second, by bearing burdens. Okay, verse two, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Um, By the way, I think verse one is uh, a specific application of verse two. Okay, so I think restoring someone caught in sin is one kind of burden that we help others bear. Um, But we can think of verse two as meeting other people's practical and spiritual needs. Okay, it is to bear someone's burden is to come alongside and to help with whatever is weighing another person down, another brother or sister down. Uh, last week, we looked at Jesus's words from Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, right? Where he says, come to me, all who, are lab- all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And he says, for my yoke is easy, right? And we said that word easy is the word kind, right? That's kindness. It's, it's Jesus' kindness that um, compels us toward him. And then he says, but my, and my burden is light. And I, I think we know, like we know that Jesus' burden is light because he bears it for us, right? Most obviously, he bore the burden of our sin on the cross. But I think it's also true that Jesus bears our burdens through his church. Jesus' burden is light because the church, our brothers and sisters, are meant to help us bear them. We are called to bear one another's another's burdens. And that word for burden there in verse 2, it describes actually like this really excessive weight. Okay, I think the, the, the meaning is like it's actually not possible for you to carry it alone. Okay, the word burden in verse 2 it's different than the word in verse 5, which is translated load. And that word load is it's not as intense. Okay, like a burden needs to be carried by more than one person. And by the way, I think verse 2 and verse 5, they don't contradict each other. I think in verse 5, all Paul is saying is that there are also things in our relationship with God that like we are responsible for ourselves. Okay, but we, at the same time, we're still called to bear one another's burdens. Um, And so like we're not meant to bear these alone. And then don't miss what Paul says after the command, right? He says, um, bear one another's burdens 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so fulfill the law of Christ. What is he talking about? Well, back in Galatians 5, 14, uh, he says that the entire law is fulfilled in this, to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? If, you bail that, if you obey that commandment, you'll, you're good with the rest of the law. Um, we saw that in James 2.8. Um, I think what he's saying is that to bear the burdens of others is an expression of love. And when you do that, you fulfill the whole law. I think this shows us that at the heart of goodness, because this is what sets the biblical goodness apart from worldly goodness. Okay, at the heart of goodness is love. Right? The fruit of goodness practices righteousness, not because it will earn the approval of others, but because it says, I love my father. I don't want to grieve him. Right? I love this other person. I want to do this person. I want to do this for their good. It enters into sin and suffering because it says, I care about this person's good. I'm willing to do whatever I can to protect it. And so when it comes to bearing one another's burdens, I want you to ask yourself, when you think about the relationships in your life. I mean, first, do you know them well enough that you actually know what their burdens are? Right? That you can actually identify what their personal and their particular needs are. And then if you're able to do that, then what steps can you take to start meeting those needs? Um, Pastor Kim, he's actually going to talk about this on Sunday, but I hope this picture of goodness and community really stands out to you. Okay, I said this at the very beginning, but I think especially during this season, I hope you recognize that this ministry beacon, it is most fundamentally defined by our relationships with one another. Okay, it's not just this time on Friday nights. It's not even just preaching, um, because honestly, you can tune into another church's YouTube for that, and you'll find you know, another more gifted, better preacher than me. Right? And, and that's, that's not church. Right? That's just listening to a message. Beacon, this ministry church, is defined by the relationships that we share with one another. It's in these relationships that form the context in which God calls each of us to take up this responsibility to do good to one another. And we do that by being willing to enter into sin and suffering of our brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, look down to verses 9 and 10. This is what we'll end here. Okay, verses 9 and 10 of Galatians 6. Paul says, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I I think we we really need to hear those words right now, verses nine and 10, because I think right now we are in a season where it is very tempting to grow weary of doing good. Uh, Someone once said that the worst enemy of enthusiasm is time. The worst enemy of enthusiasm is time. And maybe that's been your experience during this pandemic. Maybe like today you're just tired, you're bored. Uh, Every day feels the same. Every week feels the same. I think a lot of what we talked about tonight, I think it does speak to some of the particular challenges of this season. While, While we are all safer at home, you know what, there's a good chance that people will not see the good that you do. And because that's true, it'll be tempting to grow weary. Or when there's sin and suffering in the lives of others, if you know that there is like an area of sin and suffering in the life of a brother or sister that God is calling you to enter into, 
when being safer at home, it's a lot easier to just be isolated. It's a lot easier to just stay comfortable, right? Not to deal with it, not to reach out. Because of that, it can be tempting to grow weary, to, to grow weary of doing good. What does Paul say? He says, don't grow weary of doing good. Why? For in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. Remember Ephesians 2? At the very end, it says, um, Paul says, you are God's workmanship, right? And even during a time like this, Paul says that God has prepared good works beforehand for you to walk in, right? There are good works that God has prepared for you to do during this season. And so Paul says in Galatians 6, 9 and 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And as we do that, right, this is the promise that we have. Matthew five sixteen, Jesus says, let your light shine before men. Um, that's, that's the name of our ministry, right? Beacon, let your light shine before men. Why? That they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. And as we do good, as we cultivate the fruit of goodness, it turns people to the glory and the goodness of our father who is in heaven. And so knowing that, right, don't give up. Don't grow weary of doing good. And I promise you, you will reap in due season. Let's pray. God, we do ask for that sort of endurance, that perseverance, the commitment, the strength to be able to continue to be doers of good um, during this season. Uh, would you teach us, Lord, um, the motives and the, the thoughts and intents of our own heart. Help us to see clearly um, why we're doing the things that we're doing. Help us to not seek the approval of others, um, our own self-righteousness, but really to do good out of love for you and love for others. God, give us the courage, um, the wisdom, the tender care to be able to enter into others, other people's suffering and sin because that is what you have done for us and your goodness towards us. We do pray that um, as we do commit ourselves to, to doing good as opportunity presents itself, that you would reap uh, just a, a fruitful harvest um, for the good of others and also for your own glory. So God, we thank you for um, just the ways you have been good to us. We thank you for saving us towards good works. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who cultivates this fruit of goodness in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.